pray you've been blessed so far with the service. And we are looking at Acts chapter 8 today. Acts chapter 8. And this is the same passage that uh, Brother Isaac read for us already. But I'll just read the first portion uh, as we look in this passage. I'm hoping to park ourselves here for the next couple of weeks and to do a bit of digging because there's a whole lot of wonderful stuff in this passage and principles we can learn and and this guy called Philip is a very interesting character that we can uh, gain a lot of insight from. So Acts chapter 8, we'll just read from verses 26 to 31 this morning and a special welcome to our visitors. I pray you're blessed by the sermon today as well. Acts 8, 26. And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise, and go toward the south, unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, an eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot read Isaiah the prophet. And the spirit said unto Philip, Go near, and join thyself to his chariot. And Philip ran thither to him, and heard him read uh, the prophet Isaiah, and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I, except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer and commit this time to him. Father, we thank you once again for this precious word that we can hold in our hands today and trust. We thank you for its, um, the way it reveals your character and the way it is a mirror for us. And so we pray this morning that as we learn more of your ways, that you would open up our understanding, help, it, help that truth, Father, to guide our decisions and choices in life, and that we would be more focused on our Saviour as he leads us in the course of this world. For we ask for your blessing. So for every person who has their head bowed before you now, Father, I ask that you would bless them mightily because of this word that is being preached today. I ask this in the name of our precious Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, as I said, I'm hoping to park ourselves on this particular passage from verse 26 to 40 uh, for the next few weeks, maybe two, maybe three, depending on how the Lord leads. Now, next week, I want to um, impress upon you all the importance of this conference that we're having. If in any way you're able to make this Saturday uh, and join us during that time, it will be... I. Well, I'm not guaranteeing things, but um, so far, uh, all the conferences we've had have been a blessing to me. Um, don't know about all the people who are victims of my, uh, <laughs> of my words, but um, we'll be looking specifically at um, the topic of gifts and how the Holy Spirit gives every believer gift or gifts and how we're expected to use those gifts for God's glory. So we'll be looking at Topics such as the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the talents that people have, um, and how those things work together to glorify God, and how we should be on the alert always to be using those gifts that God's given us. So, gifts are uh, a wonderful thing. Um, some of us haven't opened up our gifts, they still put the wrapping on them still. Okay? So, it's important that we do know what those things are because the time is short and our goal in life should be to glorify God with all of our lives. Whether it's in church, whether it's at work, whether it's in school, wherever we are, we've been called to live lives that glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives and for people to be able to see him. And that's really the major reason God gives us gifts. So today we're looking at this particular passage. And before we sort of begin, because this is really, this sermon today is really the introduction to this passage, okay? I learned a principle very early on in life that when you read a passage in the Bible, context is important. Okay? Um, one thing I learned when studying cults and those types of, uh, of organisations and things is that what they often do is they take a portion of Scripture out and they'll read that thing or they'll take a verse out by itself and they'll make a particular doctrine about that verse but they haven't actually put it in the context of what the whole passage was nor in the passage of what its historical context was or anything else. The Bible is a fantastic document from the point of view it gives us the context almost every time. If you're wondering, but what does this mean or why it's there, if you read back, 
a portion, or if you read that chapter in the context of the other chapters around it even, you will understand and be given the context and help you understand what that verse actually means. And this passage is no different to any of those. So we're going to be looking at, first of all, the background to this passage and how it was that Philip was called to go down to Gaza, which is desert around there, um, and what he was doing uh, before this. So turn back to verse 1 of chapter 8. Verse 1 of chapter 8. And it says there, And Saul was consenting unto his death. Now that's the, um, that's the, the martyrdom of Stephen. Okay, So we, we speak about Stephen as the first martyr in the church. And at that time there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. So let's just stop there for a moment. So this is the context of how Philip ended up going to... um, or ended up being in Samaria, first of all. We're going to look at that passage in a minute as well. The church was going through, and beginning really with the stoning of Stephen as the first martyr of the church, was going through a great persecution. The Sanhedrin, the ruling council in Jerusalem, who managed the temple and all those types of things over there, uh, who were Jews, essentially, and made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. You've heard those two names before. They were the Victorian parliaments, let's say, okay, with your Labour and Liberal. That's pretty much what they were. The difference is that they were religious as well. And so the, the Pharisees were the Conservatives, the Liberals. The Sadducees were the Labour Party, right? Okay, so that's essentially what happened or what the situation in those days. And what they saw the Christians as was essentially a threat. So they attempted to drive them out of Jerusalem, out of the temple, for sure, um, but out of Jerusalem. You may remember that in the earlier chapters, especially chapter 2 and chapter 3 of the book of Acts, you'll remember that it said that the early church were meeting daily where? In the temple, right? So you had the apostles going into the temple, which is a huge, a huge complex, essentially, and then under a particular portico, they would be teaching Christianity and declaring the gospel, And so they'd meet there every day. And so believers would go there and they'd listen to the preachings of the Apostle Peter and and John and whatever. And then they'd go, after that, they'd go to their homes and have lunch together. Okay. Um, Problem with that. Um, The Jews and the Sanhedrin saw Christianity as a cult. A cult that was growing right under their noses and in their backyard. And that made them very, very uncomfortable. And so because of that, they decided to raise the level of heat, let's say. And they thought to themselves, we have to drive them out of here. And so what ends up happening is you, you have the Christians starting to, originally starting to meet in the temple, but then later on, they're not meeting in the temple anymore. Why? Because they didn't let them go back into the temple and they started to persecute them because they were a threat to them. So the Jews saw Christianity as a perversion of Judaism. They were still Jews. They were all Jews, essentially. But they saw it as a perversion of Judaism. So their job was to preserve the right religion. And Christians were not that. They were a cult. And so they began a systematic cleansing of the temple and the capital. And it began with, if you go back a few chapters, you'll see that the Apostle Peter and John were threatened a number of times when they dragged them in and they said, we want you to stop talking about this guy, Jesus. And they threatened them. And they said, sorry, can't do that. We'd rather obey God than men. And so they just kept on doing that. And that increased the level of threat they became to the Sanhedrin. And so a great persecution began in Jerusalem, starting really from the temple. And we see this fellow called Saul. 
who later became converted himself and became Paul, the apostle. And this Saul was such so zealous about his faith, was wanted to protect it so much from corruption, from these people who were changing it to something that it, it never was, apparently. And so he would go and organise to go from house to house. So if someone dogged you, you know he got like the... Uh, Today you can call to the police if you think something's wrong. Yeah, you can dob someone in. Well, that's essentially what was happening there too. So where were the Christians meeting? They were meeting in their homes. And so on a Sunday you'd see all these people all parked with their cars to front. <laughs> all having lunch together. What are they doing over there? They're singing songs that I don't recognise. They're not, they're not coming from my Jewish background. They're singing about Jesus. And so you'd uh, go past the thing and you'd say... Got a particular place over here that you might be interested in. And so Paul or Saul would then follow that up. And when he knocked on that door and he'd ask them, uh, We have an allegation over here about you being Christians and running services in your home. There, that's against the law here. What would they say? Sorry, can't help you. This is what we've been called to do. And so they would throw them in prison. Now, I'm not sure if we understand the severity of being thrown into prison. If you were the husband of a, of a, fam, you know, husband of a wife who had a family of children, pretty much most of the time you were the breadwinner of the family. They didn't have bank accounts with thousands and thousands of dollars in there. And so if you were thrown into prison for two weeks and couldn't bring home food to your family, it caused a whole lot of problems. And so this threat increased more and more. And so it tells us here that if you read verse 1, it says, and, and the great persecution against the church was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So the apostles hung back in Jerusalem, but many of the Christians who were being persecuted said, no, I'm out of here. And so they ended up leaving the capital and spreading out through Judea, which is the, the outer regions of that, of that capital, the area around it, okay? And then some of them even went into more north, into Samaria. Now, you might wonder, what are they going to Samaria for? So Samaria was a place where the Samaritans were. Well, did the Jews love the Samaritans? They liked the Samaritans? No way. If they thought the Christians were, were a perversion, the Samaritans, they thought, were a complete perversion. Because the Samaritans weren't necessarily even pure Jews. They were mixed, a mixed breed, okay? They were Jews mixed with others who had intermarried and they'd even formed their own religion. So if you remember Jesus' uh, uh, interactions with them, they had they worshipped not in the temple, they worshipped in another place. They worshipped on, on Mount Gerizim, I think it's, it was called, okay? And so they were seen as a complete perversion. Why would you, if you're a Christian, go to Samaria? Because they weren't going to touch you over there, were they? The Jews would have nothing to do with the Samaritans. And so if you were, if you were a Christian going into Samaria, you didn't, have, you didn't have a problem with the actual Sanhedrin coming chasing up there too. So it would have been quite a terrifying time for a young Christian church, especially if you're a, a, a young believer with a family and, uh, and, and there was a threat on, essentially on your life because they'd already stoned Stephen as well. But you know what? Persecution has its benefits. It has its benefits. There are good things that come from persecution, believe it or not. There are good things that come from when Christians actually suffer. And we're going to discover how the Lord allowed this persecution to occur so that something more important would occur. You see, you might ask yourself, what's, what's more important than being persecuted? It's sharing the gospel. And so that other people can be saved. You see, the church at this stage and by this stage was in danger of something. Almost all the converts that were in the church were Jews. And where had they gone? And where were they all staying? In Jerusalem. They were all happily meeting in each other's homes. They were all happily, you know, they had their system set up and they were doing whatever. Oh, yeah, the, you know, the Jews might, not, might have been happy but you know what? We're all Jews and we're all going to seek this thing through together. And so there was a lot of support and love and stability and all that sort of stuff. But the gospel wasn't necessarily going out anywhere. They were in danger of becoming a Jewish religion. 
And God didn't want that happening. And so even though they had had thousands of converts, do you remember even the first day of Pentecost, they had 3,000 converts. So imagine the multitudes that were already saved, and that's why they found them such a threat. But they may have had good fellowship. They had the apostles watching over them and shepherding them. But there was something missing. And that was the gospel being taken into the world. The faith was Jerusalem-centred. And that's not what the Lord had commanded them. Turn to Acts chapter 1, verse 8 with me, because that is not what the Lord had commanded the church and the apostles to do. Jerusalem was meant to be the starting point for the church, but not the end point. So Jesus tells us in, in, in one chapter 1, verse 8, he says, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, now look at this, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts or part of the earth. Okay, they were in Jerusalem, but they were stuck in Jerusalem. There was no if you were a believer and you got saved in Jerusalem, there was nothing really pushing you to go out anywhere because hey, you had everything there. Alright, maybe you were copying some persecution, but hey, I've got the apostles here with me. I've got the Apostle Peter and John and James and all these guys and I can look up to them and we've got a wonderful church and so many thousands of us are fellowshipping together. But that's not what Jesus had called them to do. And so they hadn't progressed to Judea. They hadn't gone into Samaria and there was no way they were going into the outermost parts of the earth if they didn't get those two places done first. And so that's why Philip finds himself in Samaria as part of the persecution. So go back to chapter 8 and verse 4 and 5 show us that God was moving the church out of its comfort zone. You see, comfort is is actually a very dangerous thing. For a Christian, God tells us not to get comfortable because That's not our job. In this world, we are called pilgrims. We are called strangers. We are called to share the gospel despite the backlash. And so the church in Jerusalem was getting too comfortable and God decided to give a bit of a push along. And so in Acts chapter 8 verse 4 it says, And therefore uh, they that were scattered abroad went everyone, everywhere, preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto there. So Philip, who was in Jerusalem as well originally, decided to go up to Samaria. He moved to Samaria and started preaching there. It's, nice, it's not nice being scattered, is it? It wouldn't be a nice thing, having all your friends scatter in all different directions. But the beautiful thing is, is that they shared their faith wherever they went. They shared their faith. And this is where we see Philip being mentioned here, who had, because of the persecution, travelled to Samaria and he was preaching Christ to them there. Now, we don't know whether he settled in Samaria, but he was in Samaria. And look at verse 6. And it says, And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them, And many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. And so Philip seems to be a pretty special guy. He preaches the gospel in in a powerful way. He does miracles by both casting out demons and healing people who have diseases such as the palsies. If you were lame completely. He had a number of spiritual gifts by the looks of it. And he was bold enough to use them. So Samaria responds to Philip's preaching in a very positive way. They received it. And the city was filled with joy because of what he had done there. But now we find an interesting story that's that's built into this particular passage. In the midst of all this joy and this wonderful work that Philip was doing, there's something that happens which sort of sidetracks the whole thing. Look at Acts chapter 8 verse 9. 
It says, and there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in that same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And to him they, ought, they had regard, because out of long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised, both men and women, not babies, men and women. Okay. Then Simon himself believed also. And when he was baptised, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. So many people believed the message, received it, and got baptised, which was an open sign to everyone that they had now changed. And they had received Christ as their saviour. And they wanted everyone else to know about it. Despite the persecution that might come from it. And Simon also, it says, believed and is baptised. After a life of sorcery and self-promotion. He thought he was something great here, it says. And many were convinced that he was. But now Simon, who was probably a trickster sees genuine miracles occur. He sees people that he's probably known for years who couldn't walk all of a sudden get up and walk. He sees people who were possessed by devils that he maybe couldn't touch at all, all of a sudden now are free from that demonic oppression. And he thinks to himself, that's fantastic. And he makes a decision to believe and be baptised. But I want you to keep an eye on what he's focusing on. So he continues to follow Philip and look where his focus is. In that verse 13 it says, And he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Hmm. Where's his eyes on? Is it on Jesus Christ? No, it's on the miracles. Now, why has he got his eyes on the miracles? But why is he still so enamoured with these miracles and following after Philip? Well, have a look at verse 14. Now, when the apostles, which were at Jerusalem, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost, for as yet he was fallen upon none of them. Only they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid they their hands on them and they received the Holy Ghost. Now, what's going on here? You may wonder, hang on a sec. They believed. They were baptised. Why hadn't they received the Holy Spirit? Isn't that enough? Well, at that stage, it wasn't. Because there was something else that had to happen. Uh, the receiving of the gospel for the Samaritans was such an important thing that the apostles, when they heard about it in Jerusalem, go and send Peter and John to go and check it out. And if they verified it, they would pray for them. Why? Because it says the Holy Ghost hadn't come upon them yet. They hadn't received the Holy Ghost. He hadn't. He had only fallen upon the Jews in Jerusalem. Do you remember? At the day of Pentecost. So the Jews had received the Holy Ghost. They were getting saved. The Holy Ghost was manifesting himself through them with gifts and things of that nature. But he hadn't done that for the Samaritans. And so you may have wondered about that passage where Jesus speaks about giving the keys of the kingdom to Peter. Ever wondered that? Because the Catholic Church takes that to mean that he's got the keys of heaven. You know... You've probably seen these uh, these particular things or heard this before that when you get to heaven, who's waiting at the front gate? St. Peter, right? Yeah, St. Peter. And so St. Peter's got the book and if your name's in the book, you know, you can, you know, you can come in. And he's got the keys, right? So he's got the key that opens the front door of, of heaven for you. That's got nothing to do with this. The reason that Jesus told Peter, you've got the keys of the kingdom, Peter made the first public profession that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
And if you remember, Jesus says it wasn't it, it was it wasn't you that came with this, it was my father that gave this to you. And then when Jesus says he's going to build his church, he said to Peter, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. The keys of the kingdom. Well, the keys of the kingdom were essentially that Peter was responsible to open the door for the Holy Spirit to come down on the next group of people. You see, the, the, the world was divided into three groups, okay? The Jews, the Samaritans, which, which were half-breeds, which were half-Jewish and half another, another uh, 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 culture. And then the Gentiles, right? And what you find, and what, what Jesus tells his, his disciples is, I want you to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea, which is all the Jews still, to, where's the next one? Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth, which, which are all the Gentiles. Okay, and Australia is the uttermost part of the earth compared to Jerusalem. Okay, so the fellow, if you read, if you read the book of Acts, who was there? When the Holy Spirit came down on each of those groups, it was Peter. He was there on the day of Pentecost. He now has heard that the Samaritans have believed. And so they send him down with John. And as they pray for them, the Holy Ghost comes down on them too. And then when the Gentiles get saved, guess who's there again? Peter. So Peter was like the guy who opened the door for the Spirit to come on each major group in the world. And here we have, for the first time, the Samaritans believing the Gospel through the preaching of Philip. And Peter is there, lays hands on them with the Apostle John, and they received the Holy Ghost. And so... We have here the verification that God was now working with Samaritans. And when the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit, it was verification that God was now saving the Gentiles too. Why? Because the Jews had a pretty hard time with the Samaritans. And if they didn't like the Samaritans, they didn't like the Gentiles either. They saw them as, as people that were completely debauched, as people that were completely devoid of knowledge of God that had rejected God, why would we accept them? They'd accept them if they believed that God was now working with them too. So look at verse 18. Just going back to Simon now. So Simon now sees Peter and, and John, and they see the, the falling of the Holy Spirit, and it would have been manifest the same way as in the day of Pentecost, okay? So he sees them speaking in different languages probably and other gifts that have been given to them. And so it says in verse 18, And when Simon saw that, they were, that through the laying on the, of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money. That's what you do. <laughs> Saying, Give me also this power that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee. Peter didn't mention his words either. Because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. There was neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Then answered Simon and said, pray, pray ye to the Lord for me, that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. Peter notices one thing immediately and realises Simon's not saved. Simon made a profession of faith. Simon even got baptised. But why did Simon get baptised and believe? Because Simon thought he was going to get something out of it. Simon thought... I'm, if I have this power, people will follow me. So who was Simon really focused on? Was he focused on the Lord Jesus Christ? No. He was focused on himself. And Peter saw this, obviously, and said, you're in the gall of bitterness. Your, your life is filled with iniquity. And, and pray you can repent of this. So he's saying to him, essentially, pray that you can, that, that you can change your mind about this, that you won't put yourself first and you'll turn to Christ to be saved, essentially. And Simon becomes fearful and says, please pray for me, that, that I won't die in that way. There's a lesson in here for us. 
And it's simply this. And it's not just for us in here, but when you talk to people out there, okay, not everyone who says they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is actually saved or born again. There are some who have come to the Lord and even been baptised because they imagined they were going to gain something from it. And in this case, Simon thought he was going to gain power and influence. I'm sure you've, you've heard, many of you have heard, that when Muslims who move out from the Middle East and migrate to you know, places like Europe and Australia, that many of them become Christians. Many become Christians. Because they believe that these are Christian countries and by being a Christian you get better treatment and benefits. Have you heard of the cargo cult? The cargo cult, essentially from what I understand it in, in PNG, and, and for places that are poor where the gospel has been brought, they see these American missionaries and European missionaries come in with all this expensive stuff. They've got mobile phones and they've got all this stuff. They've got nice clothes. And so they think when they see the, the cargo, when they see the, the planes drop, the, the fantastic stuff that these guys have got, that God blesses them, right? And so they become Christians because they think, God will give me this cargo as well. Does that make sense? They think that God blesses them by dropping stuff out of the sky because they're a particular thing. And so they, they join the Christian club thinking that they'll also receive this cargo. There are people who are becoming Christians today because they've been told that if you become a, a Christian, you will gain wealth, health and prosperity. Just turn on your TV and watch a Christian station and you'll see that come up over and over again. There are people who are apparently becoming Christians by an act of their, and this has been happening for a long time, by an act of their own parents. Their parents made the decision for them when they were born, and they're Christians today, apparently they believe in Jesus because someone else made the decision. There are those who are apparently Christians because their family has always been that way. My parents are, my grandparents have been, and so I'm, I'm that way too because of them. Or well, there are people that are Christians apparently because it's their culture. And there are people who become Christians because they just want to fit in. Now you might say, well, how does that work out? One of the things that we notice in the US that's very different to here is that you can go into some towns over there and some states even where the majority of people are Christians. So you walk into the bank and the bank teller's Christian, you go to your supermarket and the people serving you behind the counter is Christian and you, you go, everyone's Christian around you, which is really weird for us, right? <laughs> but if you're not a Christian, the danger with that is if you're not a Christian, you won't fit into your society. So there are some people that even become Christian because they want to fit in. There are some people that are in church because church is a wonderful place to be. You get people who love you, that are generous, that are caring. There's a wonderful spirit that, you know, that when you go there, they say, why wouldn't I want to be part of that? It's lovely. So they become Christians because of the benefits. Simon fell into a trap. He thought that being a Christian might give him some superpowers that would make him even more popular than he was before. But there are plenty of people in this world who are doing the same thing. And we need to be careful that we don't fall into this type of thinking. We need to be careful that we just don't assume that someone says to us they're a Christian and just assume that they automatically are. You see, it's the question is whether you will turn to Christ to be saved by Him. Whether you will put your faith in Him. Whether you will love Him. And you remember, obedience is one of those things that actually proves that you love him. Is it really Jesus that people trust? Or have they trusted the church or the denomination? Or maybe they've trusted a system. Or maybe they've trusted a religion or a Bible 
or a Bible version or a pastor because he's such a great speaker. I've got to go to that church because that pastor is such a wonderful speaker. He really inspires me when he speaks. Let me tell you something. None of those things save you. None of them. Not a church. Not a Bible. Not a pastor. Not Christians around you. Those things do not save you. They may point you to be saved, but they won't save you. There's only one who can save, and that's Jesus Christ. And if you don't have him in your life, you have nothing. Nothing. And Simon had nothing, even though he thought he had something. Let's be careful about our own walk and our own lives. So let's look at verse 25, and it says about Peter and John, it says, And they, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem and preached the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. They returned. So on the way back to Jerusalem to report the wonderful news about what they'd seen, the Samaritans had now been brought into the kingdom of God and it was proven because the Holy Spirit had come upon them the same way they had received it at Pentecost. They preached the, the gospel to all of them as well. Praise the Lord for that. The Holy Spirit had been given to the Samaritans. Those people that the Jews considered dogs and heathens were now joined with them in the family of God. I can imagine when Peter and John got back to Jerusalem. Can you imagine that? And you have got amazing news for you. This is what happened over there. We saw this. We preached the gospel. They received the word. And I'm sure there would have been great joy in the actual church, but I'm sure also there would have been some Jews who said, oh, hang on a sec. That sounds a bit dodgy. Those people have always been against us. Are you telling us that, that now they're believers like us too? They're on the same level as us? We're Jews. We've kept the word of God. We've known the word of God. We've written the word of God. These guys have corrupted the word of God. You mean God saved them now too? I'm sure there would have been those ideas lurking in the minds of some when they heard it. But the Samaritans were now equal to the Jews. And wait until the Gentiles received the Holy Ghost. The whole of other problems that came along with that. But what an honour. What a privilege to be recorded in the everlasting scriptures that you were the person who was the first to preach to the Samaritans and the door of salvation was open to them. And Philip's name is recorded here for all of eternity now that he actually obeyed the Lord. He, he sent the gospel. He shared the gospel. He preached the gospel. And this whole group of people who were despised were now brought into the kingdom of God. But which Philip is it? You see, there's more than one Philip mentioned in the Bible. Who was this Philip? Let's have a quick look at that. Look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 2. Because one Philip that we know about was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was one of the 12 disciples that followed Jesus. And it says, Now the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the publican, James, the son of Alphaeus, and, and Lebaeus, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. And so we see here that Philip was one of the apostles, one of the 12 apostles, along with Peter and the others. Could it have been him? Well, that's one option. The other option is that he was Philip the deacon. okay? And we see him being mentioned. Look at Acts chapter 6, verse 2. Acts chapter 6, verse 2. Now, the context for this particular passage is that when people were selling their land when the, when the church started, there were a number of people who were coming into the church and some of them were widows and orphans, okay? So they were getting saved. And so the church took it upon itself to feed these people, to help these people. And so they would give them money on a daily basis to go and buy their food. They didn't have soup kitchens opened up, okay? They didn't do all that. But what they did 
is that people would sell what they have and give what they had. They sell blocks of land, for instance, and it says they would lay the money at the apostles' feet. And then they say to the apostles, go and do what you need to do with that. Okay? So imagine that. They'd sell a block of land or a house that they didn't need and they'd, they'd, they'd throw it at the apostles' feet or maybe a house they did need and they still sold it anyway. And so the apostles had a problem in that they wanted to preach the word of God. But here they are counting money and then working out who to give it to. And then there was a dispute that happened because the Greeks, okay, those of a Greek background who were still Jews but had a Greek background, were saying, our women, our, our, our widows aren't being looked after here. The Jews are being looked after more, but we're not. And so there was a dispute that took place within the church about something that good the church was actually doing. And so who was it falling back on? The apostles. Okay, so the apostles said, no, we can't have this stuff. We have to free ourselves of this business of, of handling money and working out who to give it to and hand over to people that are responsible. So look at verse 2 of chapter 6. It says, Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Okay? Now, serving tables is not, does not mean they were serving, handing out food. Serving tables was, a, well, that, that was called like being at the bank. You know when you go to the, the teller, okay, and you, they give you money over the counter? Well, they used to do that on tables, okay? And so they said to them, it's not reasonable, not reason for us to leave the word of God and be busy working out money. Verse 3, it says, Wherefore, brethren, look out among you seven men of honest report. They had to be honest because they were handling money, okay? Full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the same pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith. He's the one that got uh, stoned to death. And the Holy Ghost. And Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. So this is another Philip. This is another Philip. Because he, along with the other seven, had been brought before who? The twelve. And Philip was part of that twelve. And so there's two Philips now. The Philip, who is the apostle, who gave now the blessing and laid hands on these seven who were going to be the first deacons, the proto-deacons of the church. right? And their job was to take away all this other stuff about ministry and all the, uh, about ministering to, to widows and orphans and all that sort of stuff so that the apostles could focus on the word and prayer. So the job, the original job of the deacons was to free the apostles. So this has to be another Philip. It can't be a, the apostle as well, otherwise he would have been in both camps. Right? But now we have this, this deacon Philip being mentioned again later on. So turn to Acts 21. Much later on, we see this Philip, who had been to Samaria to preach the word, we see him being visited by someone. Acts chapter 21, verse 8. And look at what he's known as now. And the next day, we... we uh, we that were of Paul's company departed and came unto Caesarea and we entered into the house of Philip the evangelist which was one of the seven and abode with him and the same man had four daughters virgins which did prophesy so they were, had gifts of the Holy Spirit as well Okay, they were prophesying but look at Philip He's now called Philip the Evangelist. Now, why do you think he'd be called Philip the Evangelist? Because of what he'd already done in Samaria and what, he'd already, what he was going to do later on as well, which we'll read and focus on these next, next couple of weeks. So, Philip was not the, this is not Philip the Apostle. This is Philip, one of the seven. And this is Philip now, the Evangelist, who had preached to Samaria. And so it teaches us something important about the church and the roles within the church. The apostles had a very important play 
uh, pastor play in the early church, a role that provided authority in the church. And this, is, this was really, really important because the Word of God was not yet available. The Word wasn't there. It wasn't complete. So you needed the apostles to say what's right doctrine and what's wrong doctrine because they were filling in that particular place. The New Testament wasn't complete. They provided also signs and wonders so that people would come to believe, especially the Jews, because the Greeks seek after wisdom, but Jews require a sign. And so their job was twofold. They, they shepherd the church and, and give it the authority it needed while the New Testament was not complete, okay, when it comes down to doctrine. And they were the ones who were given preeminent, preeminent gifts concerning miracles that would convince the Jews that the gospel was real and that Jesus Christ was real. And that's why we don't have apostles today. If anyone calls himself an apostle on TV or anywhere else, they're pulling your leg. There are no apostles today because those two things have been satisfied. The word of God was complete by about 90 AD and the Jews had their opportunity to receive Jesus as their king. But around 70 AD, the Romans destroyed the temple completely and that door was closed until Jesus returned. Until the second coming of the Messiah. And you know what happens then? The temple is rebuilt. And they'll receive him as their king in that temple. But today, there is no need of apostles because the word of God is complete. You know the authority we get our authority from today? The word of God. There is no more need of apostles as the authority. A pastor is not the authority when it comes to truth. No, it's the word of God that's the authority when it comes to truth. So there's no more need of that particular authority. But the relationship between the apostles and deacons are similar to the relationship between a pastor and deacons. Because the deacons are still called to take on those responsibilities which free up the pastor to minister the word. And so that's why there are only two positions in the church, what we call officers in the New Testament, and they are the pastor, also known as the deacon, also known as elder, which is a formal position in the church, and the other one is the deacons. Okay? And that has continued from that. So let's go quickly back to uh, Philip the Evangelist. So after Philip has spent time preaching the gospel in Samaria, we see the Holy Ghost speaking to him in some sort of miraculous fashion. Look at Acts 8.26. And so it says there, And the angel of the Lord, Acts chapter 8, verse 26, The angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise, and go toward the south, unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. So Philip had just spent good time preaching the gospel to the Samaritans, He'd seen the apostles come and, and, and do this wonderful thing where they prayed on them and the Holy Spirit came down on them as well. Um, but now God speaks to him after his first missionary trip and he must have been, he was wrapped. Can you imagine that result? If you went there and you saw that result, you would have been absolutely over the moon. Wow, I'm an evangelist now. God's given me the gift of evangelism. And look at what I've done, Lord, for you. Look at the results from me just being in, in Samaria and sharing your word. Where do you want me to go next, Lord? Do you want me to go to Rome? I'll go and speak in front of Caesar for you. And where does God send him? Uh, no, no, not Rome. I want you to get out of the desert now. And you might, if you're Philip, you might say, but Lord, I'm capable of so much more. The desert isn't the most obvious place that you'd want to go if you'd just spend time sharing the gospel with people and you had such a great response. It doesn't make sense from a pragmatic point of view. But you know something? And this is our, our lesson, really. Sometimes the Lord will call you to do things which don't make the most obvious sense. This wouldn't have made much sense from an earthly point of view. 
that sometimes the Lord will call you to go somewhere or do something that doesn't make practical sense. And don't get me wrong here, the Lord will never, ever, ever call you to do something that breaks His word, that breaks His law or goes against His character or goes against the gifts and the fruits of the Spirit. Never, ever. Not once. Okay? God is not inconsistent. He'll never ask you to do something contrary to His word. But He may ask you to do something that's not exactly common sense. Like going to preach in the desert. But in calling you to do that, it will reveal something about yourself. It'll show you what you actually believe about God. You see, most people will do something that makes obvious sense to them. They'll go and do it, won't they? Because it makes sense in my head. When God asks us to do something that doesn't make obvious sense, and the gaps aren't filled in, the natural mind will start to say, what's that what for? It doesn't make sense. I can't connect the dots here. What I can share with you this morning is that if God is asking to do something, to make a change, to go somewhere, to go and fulfill something, He will make it clear. You see, to Philip, He spoke in in an audible way. But we don't have those gifts today. Okay, We don't have the, the, the word of wisdom or the word of knowledge that's described as one of the New Testament gifts, Okay, where God speaks to someone directly and then they share it with other people. No, no, he had, he had an audible and clear thing that he had to do. But today, how do we find out exactly what God wants us to do? Well, God, if God wants you to do something, he will make it and clarify it in a number of ways. First of all, he'll provide it through his word. He will then provide... Confirmation through godly counsel. If you have a desire to go be a missionary overseas, God may be calling you to that. A way to confirm that is when you go to and you ask them, what do you think of this? They will be a wonderful source of confirmation and they'll, they'll provide you with godly counsel. God will also provide clarification when you pray and ask for that clarification and the grace to receive it as well. And what God does wonderfully, which he has done in my life over and over again, when I'm too thick to understand what's... God aligns the circumstances in front of me. He lines everything up. He does it. And all I have to say is, I don't understand fully. I don't know what's going on. But it looks to me, you want me to go this next step here and then there. Why? I don't know. But you know what? I'll go that direction. And God will do that for you over and over again if you simply say, I'm going to live by faith and not by sight. And so that's the the feedback we get here from Philip. It says he doesn't question God. It doesn't say, oh God, surely I've got something better to do with my time. No, he simply says, verse 26, and that's where he meets the man of Ethiopia, which we'll look at next week. But look at the response. He obeyed in a simple and determined fashion. All the de- 1, 10, 100, whether he was going to be killed along the way. He had no idea of all the details of this thing. He simply knew God said, I want you to go to that desert down to Gaza. And we see him, he arose and went. Philip had faith. Faith. And that faith led to obedience, which I was talking about this morning during communion. He knew all the details. He didn't need to know them. That he simply got up and started his way down there. His faith was revealed by his obedience. This morning as we close, as we see teach us what faith looks like, do you obey when God calls you to do something? Is God calling you to do something now? Or has he been asking you to do something maybe for weeks and months and you've been saying, sorry, and I can't do that? I don't know how that works, so I'll have to put that one to the side. My life. Then do that. Let me ask you a question this morning. Where are you with your obedience? When you open up the word of God and it says, 
to love your brethren, to forgive. When it tells us obvious things to do that are the fruits of the Spirit, do you consider, oh, I haven't been forgiving about to that person? Or I'm caught up with other things outside of with the Word of God rather than focusing on that. Do you obey the Word of God or do we offer excuses? Because God speaks to us through His Word now. And if we can't perform and obey the simple Word, how on earth do we expect God is going to call us to greater things? Do you obey the Lord when He calls you to do something or to go somewhere? Do you pray? Was there an excuse not to pray? Do you read his word? Or are there plenty of excuses not to read his word? Do you come to church on a regular basis? And I speak to those who are watching online. If you could be in church this morning, but you found a reason to be home, will that cut it with the Lord if you had to give an answer to him? You see, the Bible teaches us that we love the brethren. Jesus actually said one of the signs that you're saved is your love of the brethren. Now, if you can't hang around your brethren, if you don't care enough about your brethren that you can't even spend some hours with them on a Sunday morning because you're too busy or your lifestyle's got too many things that are more important than that, then let me ask you this morning, what type of love do you actually have? Jesus says, they just shall know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. Do you care? Do you call up brethren who aren't well? Do you take time out of your busy schedule, and we're all busy, to actually care about those who are your brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, because I can't do that properly either. When was the last time we moved ourselves to the Lord? We moved about the walk. The early church in Jerusalem got comfortable. They didn't want to move. And the Lord moved them. So my question to you this morning is, how comfortable are you in this world? Are you so comfortable with the world that church takes second, third and fourth place? Are you so comfortable in this world that Jesus and time with him is coming second and third? Please ask yourself that question. I can't answer these questions for you. Only, But in, in the end, ultimately, what you bring into eternity will depend on how honest you are with yourself. Let's be faithful and obedient. Let's remember how much he loved us. And let's love him back. God bless you. Brother Don, would you lead us in that final hymn? Thank you. Thank you, Pastor. Time for us to conclude this morning. Good to have you with us. And those that are watching on the, the screen, good to have you with us. And hopefully we'll see you here one day with us and to be in our family here at Faith Baptist Church as we meet each week. We're going to sing our last hymn, number 252. 252, only trust Him. There's only one thing to do, just trust in the Lord. 252, let's stand and sing this together. Come every soul by Sino Press, number 252. Together we are singing. Every soul by
screen. Thank you for those who have taken part singing and the instruments. We pray that you have a blessed week. Use your life to share your love for him with those around you. Let us be dismissed now in a word of prayer. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the truths we find in the word of God. We thank you for the pastor bringing forth that today. In the next few weeks, especially as we approach uh, uh, the business, the, the conference on next weekend, that you give us a blessed time there. Keep us safe as we travel about. Have us living for you.